You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Kels. Oh, friends. Hey, I have known my guest today for a couple of years now. We've had the privilege of getting together and getting to know each other. Also, uh, his wife has already been on the show. Today's guest is uh, the good doctor, Ike Miller. Ike, like his wife, Sharon, is a PhD scholar, is a local church pastor, a church planter. And Ike is also releasing a book this fall. So this episode that we're recording now is coming out a few months before his book. But man, uh, I'm really excited about this book. It's called Good Baggage. Ike is digging into childhood and uh, obviously not all the, the pain and difficult stuff, but also what about our childhood is being redeemed or what becomes a accidental or intentional asset. Mm-hmm. Now, many of you know, typically when I have a guest, I'm doing the interview, the guest is doing the talking. Other episodes, there's no guest and I'm just giving a tool. Today's totally a hybrid <laughs> because my friend Ike is launching his podcast. He's actually going to interview me, but there's no way I'm letting him get away with that because <laughs> he's got good stuff. So Ike, Welcome to Managing Leadership Anxiety, which, of course, will also be on your feed with your show later. Uh, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, Steve, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for letting me hijack your podcast and interview you uh, for a chance. But excited for this conversation. And yeah, uh, the the book is called Good Baggage. And just to share a little bit of where that idea comes from, uh, you know, my story is coming through the pandemic and just finding myself completely overwhelmed by the challenges of ministry and all the ways that I was getting exhausted. And in that process, I began to really wrestle with the impact of my childhood on my leadership and the relationships in my ministry. And as I began to focus on that, uh, I was wrestling with all the ways that it created obstacles to healthy relationships. But I also began to realize that there were things that my childhood put in me that helped me to have healthy relationships if I could learn how to leverage them. And so that sent me on this journey of kind of exploring, you know, what what were some of those things that happened in my childhood that were hard, but that now I can actually benefit from what I've learned from them. And so uh, excited to share about what some of those things are, but would love to hear from you first, Steve, uh, you know, to the degree that you'd like to share, is there anything from your childhood that you feel like has impacted your relationships as an adult? Oh, positive man. or I, negative. I mean, I, I, I think- <laughs> I, I, I think so many. What what I love about your focus, I, I love that you're forcing us to look at the whole experience because I can resonate. Like when I think of the positive aspects of my childhood, um, the things that come to mind is my family's love of adventure. I definitely inherited that and that has really served me well in vocational ministry. Um, even simple things like, like um, my dad is not a musician, but in my childhood, he was always playing music. Mm. And so I have a love for a very diverse amount of music. I I almost can't go a day without listening to music. It's just a great pleasure. It's a a gift from God. Um, I I have, like you, found profound freedom by looking at some of the wounds of childhood or or the difficult things. And it's what I call the family propaganda. Mm. And that's maybe a harsh term because (laughs) it's not as if my parents or my grandparents or my family of origin, it's not as if they were intentionally sending these propaganda messages, but it just helps me to use propaganda because then I don't trust it as much. Mm. And two two of the more difficult sides of my childhood, 
is simply the idea that um, cusses help other people. Cusses never need help. Mm. And um, the other one is others always have it worse than us. Mm. So don't complain. Mm. And now what's interesting, it's funny. I know, you know, with Good Baggage, you're writing about this. My current book, I'm, I'm working on this right now. What's interesting about those two family messages are they're accurate. Mm. Um, we do help others. Uh, we, we always have. I'm in the helping industry. My, my sister is a lawyer and she uses her law degree to help marginalized mm. people, for example. Mm. Um, and also, it's also true that others generally have it worse than us. Yeah. But where things get a little crazy, even as we're recording this, my mom is right at the end of her battle with a really aggressive cancer. Mm. And getting her and dad to get the help that's available to them, they just don't want to bother. I, when I was home in September, getting them to get a wheelchair for my mum, which would have made life so much easier, they just kept saying, oh, we're not at that point yet. <laughs> my dad is dragging my mother around the house, oh. like under her armpits. Yeah. We're not at that point yet. <laughs> and that's that's part of the family propaganda and you know, where it really gets in the way of my relationships and my faith is I've had friends tell me off hmm. and basically say, if we are going to be friends at all, you're going to have to figure out how to need me, Steve, because wow. you always reach out to me, you take great care of me, and I, I try to help you and you won't have it. And so maybe 10 years ago was a turning point for me where a friend really confronted me about, hey, this one-way deal is not working for me. Hmm. And then it really comes into play with my faith. Wow. I really struggle to pray for myself hmm. because theologically, God's got bigger problems on his plate with other people. It's so so digging into my childhood has been really helpful for me to to test these beliefs against my faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'd love to Yeah. First of all, just really sorry to hear about your mom and just be praying for that process as you guys walk through that. Thanks. Yeah. It is interesting to observe even in those moments the ways that those family propagandas kind of continue to play out. Um yeah, you know, in my own story, I think uh, a lot of it is around um, my identity. Uh, I think there was a lot that formed in particular, you know, my story is growing up in a context where uh, one of my parents was an alcoholic. And so, so much of how I was shaped to see the world was formed in that alcoholic system and how to see myself was formed in that system. And in a similar way, there was kind of the story of, I am responsible for the emotions in my household. And uh, one of the things that I read at some point that was really interesting for me is they said, you know, when you're a young child, you kind of live with this uh, omnipotence as if, you know, you are completely in control of the world around you and you see what the things that happen around you as a direct consequence of your actions. Mm. And so, yeah. you know, seeing my father respond to my actions in certain ways that, really had more to do with him, maybe his state of intoxication, but I read that as I'm responsible for that. And so I need to do that differently. And the way that that played out in so much of my life has been, I just carry the responsibility of everyone's emotions and reactions. And it's my responsibility to fix those if they're not good. And that was kind of what broke me during COVID was I couldn't fix everybody's emotions. I couldn't fix everybody's reactions. You know, I, I thought if we could sit down and have a conversation, I could fix all of that. And, you know, lo and behold, I couldn't. And it brought me to the point of breaking. And uh, so that's been one of the big things for me. Yeah. 
It's it's interesting, like, isn't it? Like you you're really good at naming that, and it's still weird that it's hard to break the habit. Like yeah. you know that about yeah. yourself. I, I'm in the same boat. Yeah. What what kind of situations today in leadership would maybe turn you into an eight year old quicker than others? I think the biggest moments are the moments where I am presented with this sense of, okay, you are the leader, so you should know the answer. Yeah. And so in that moment, my mind isn't thinking, is it realistic for me to know the answer to this? It is, I need to perform in this moment. I need to show up because if I don't know the answer, that reflects negatively on me as a leader. They're going to be upset with me because I haven't done this well. And so any of those moments where I'm supposed to know the answer, but I don't, uh, those are the moments where it kind of takes me right back to that moment of, if I don't perform, I'm going to get punished. This isn't going to go well. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the things that I was interested to hear uh, that you've talked about and written about in Managing Leadership Anxiety is this idea of childhood vows. And I was wondering if you could just start by defining for us what is a childhood vow and why do we make them? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What a great question. A, A childhood vow is an agreement we make with ourselves as kids to survive into adulthood. At its simplest form, it's an agreement of what I must do and be in order to make it into adulthood. And then it gets a little more complicated because a lot of those agreements are subconscious. You don't know that you've made those agreements until you're an adult. Mm. And then some of them are conscious. And and the general rule about childhood vows, they tend to all revolve around a theme of lack or pain. So what we know about attachment theory is children need to be safe, secure, and soothed. And if they are those three, then they are free to explore the world. Here's a goofy example. I, um, we got all this snow yesterday in Colorado, and I was out at 6 a.m. shoveling. I normally take my dog out at 7 a.m. We have a puppy playgroup, but I took him out at 6. I let him off leash. And while I'm shoveling the driveway, he is running around the neighborhood, <laughs> visiting people, having the time of his life. He's a very friendly dog, for those of you who are alarmed right now. But he would get a certain distance away from me or he would get out of sight. And I'd be like, I wonder if I should go find Brody. And then he'd come bounding back. And in a very simple level, that's because my dog is attached. He feels safe. He feels secure. He feels soothed. And he knows then that he is free to go explore Mm. because he can always come back. That's the dream. That's what, but none of us get it. Mm. And it's, what's interesting is sometimes it's clearly a parent's fault. Mm. Like if there is abuse or, or addiction But it's complicated, isn't it? Because oftentimes, even the best parents, like my wife and I have tried to be the best parents we can be to our children, but we know that they suffered lack. Mm. And what happens is it's the meaning you make Mm. out of the pain or lack. That's where the childhood vow is forged. So um, I grew up with a dad that was very angry and yelled a lot. And I was a very sensitive kid. I'm still actually a very sensitive adult. Mm -hmm. And so that really hurt. So I made agreements with myself on how I'm going to be in the world so I don't feel that pain. Mm -hmm. And one of the weird agreements that took me years to realize is I also made agreements on how I would treat others so they never felt that pain from me. So it's very hard for my wife, Lisa, to ever get me to admit that I'm angry at her. It's almost impossible. 
no, honey, I'm not angry. I'm just kind of <laughs> trying to figure some things out right now. She's like, just tell me you're mad. Yes. Tell me I made you mad. Oh, no, no. Because I felt destroyed as a kid. Yeah. Um, and I therefore I believe that I will destroy you. Yeah. So that's the heart of a childhood vow. It's based on lack and pain. Yeah. And then it's the meaning. And then just the final piece of it is um, the simple idea is that when you become an adult, uh, you now have power and agency that you did not have as a right. kid. Kids really are powerless, but you are still operating as if your childhood is true. And so it, it infects your future. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think profoundly infects my capacity to trust God. A lot of my own faith mm -hmm. is wrapped up in childhood vows. Yeah, it, it's funny to hear you say this story about kind of it's not okay to be angry. Uh, you know, growing up in my context, I only saw anger lead to negative you know, consequences and problems. And, uh, and so I just developed this mentality that anger is never okay. And it's not okay to express. Yeah. And it took several years into our marriage before I could utter the words, I'm angry with you. <laughs> yeah. it, it really did. Yeah. And, and learning that that was okay, and even healthy to be able to articulate. So it's really interesting to hear you say that. I'm curious to hear, and I think this would be helpful for all of us, how do we discover our childhood vows? It's hard, isn't it? Mm. I, I we, we do this at our church where we help people go through this. It is a hard process, and it's hard on a podcast because I do think you need a, a trusted mm. community, that whole safe, secure thing. I think you need to try to replicate that in a peer group of some kind. Mm. So in our church, we do it in community, groups of four to six and the second thing you need, I think, is time. And this is the hardest I've found is you need kindness towards yourself. Mm. So if those contexts are in place, yeah. what you're trying to get to, I have found it helpful to say, okay, I just always assume that my belief in God is my deepest belief. What if that's not true? What if actually I hold beliefs that are deeper and more core than my belief in God? And can I look at that without shame or guilt? You know, it feels so wrong. How, how, and I'm a pastor. How could a pastor <laughs> possibly? But what's really freed me up, Ike, is to say, okay, my belief in Jesus is my most precious belief, but it is not my deepest belief. Mm -hmm. And so what you're looking for is how you behave when you don't get what you think you need in the present tense. So what I was listening for what you were saying through COVID, this need to be responsible for everybody. So you have to learn to be suspicious of these impulses and say, is that what God's calling me to do? Mm. Or is that what I'm calling me to do? And it does take a while to detangle them. Yeah. But I do think, I think most of us can say it and then we hear ourselves say it and say, that that doesn't sound yeah. true, actually. <laughs> I've been operating that way. So you do have to name it. Um, but I think what you're trying to do is find these impulses deep down and so if you're really advanced, you can feel it in your body. You can actually feel that reactivity. Yeah. But you, you're looking for your recurring behaviors of activity toward others or protection toward yourself. <laughs> I, I might throw the question to you, Ike, because you might have a tighter way to answer it, but that's how I would answer it. Yeah, you know, I think for me, the, the times that I've learned the most about myself is the moments when the pain of something has reached a point where I can no longer keep going without really addressing it, you know, uh, 
And it kind of forces me to sit down and say, okay, what's really going on here? Why do I find myself having the same conversation over and over again? Why do I find myself feeling this same way over and over again? And actually taking the time to kind of process that and kind of get at what are the assumptions I'm making about myself, about this person, about how this is supposed to go. Um, but really, you know, as as hard as it is to admit, I feel like it. we, for me at least, I have to come to the point of really dealing with the pain. It, it, it's not just like, oh, you know, I'm going to do some introspective work today because I just feel like doing some introspective work. I'm trying to get better at doing that, you know, but I think for many of us just starting out, it's getting real with the, the recurring painful experiences we have and finally saying, okay, I want things to go differently. What's going on? And a lot of that, we will unearth our own habits uh, that are driving this, that helps us to see the assumptions we're making. Uh, one of the tools that I often use is called the five whys. And uh, I'll try to make this brief, but basically the way the tool works is it was originally created for Toyota manufacturing company uh, and for their factories. Mm -hmm. It was how they explored what was going wrong on a factory floor. And so let's say, for example, that the person installing the windshields was constantly uh, late getting their windshields installed. Uh, they would go to them and they'd say, hey, why are you late getting your windshields installed? And they say, well, the guy that's preparing the windshields is late getting them to me. And so they go to him and say, hey, why are you late getting the windshields installed and or getting them to the guy to install the windshield? And he's like, well, the guy delivering them to us is constantly late. So they go to the delivery company and say, hey, why are you guys constantly late with getting the deliveries to our factories? And like, well, there's a shortage of, of windshields. So they go to the windshield company and say, hey, what's the deal with the shortage of windshields? And they say, well, there's a shortage of raw materials. All of that to say, you go four or five layers down and you answer your first question, which is, why are you delayed? Typically, our instinct is to treat what's on the surface, to just tell this guy, hey, work faster, work harder. And you're going to replace the same guy and over and over again, but you never address the root issue. And so what I've done in my own life is in those moments where I feel pain is I will ask that question. Why do I feel this insecurity right now? And then I would go layer down and then I'd say, why, why? And usually what's at the core of it is some false belief about myself or about yeah. who I'm supposed to be, yeah. uh, which is really hard to admit. But you get to some of those childhood vows and those commitments that you've made that you didn't know you've made. <laughs> it's really helpful. I, I, def, I think I've done a similar journey and I, I just like every three to five years, I get tired of running into myself. Yeah, yeah. It's that I'm like, oh, there I go again, doing that same thing again. Why am I doing it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the other thing, Ike, is it's challenging in the church because sometimes we can't tell the difference between um, our impulses and God's will. I, yeah. Like, you know, my, my wife is in many ways my secret weapon. She's a trauma and attachment therapist. Mm -hmm. Really handy yeah, to have around. Absolutely. By the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and she often reminds me because I do a lot of inner critic work with people which to me is always very powerful. And, and Lisa says, don't forget, Steve, oftentimes people don't, they just assume their inner critic is God's voice. Mm. So she's always challenged me, how do we help people be more suspicious of these impulses? And that's another thing I found helpful too, is don't automatically think God is calling you to do something. Yeah. Just question that. Yeah, I, I think especially within context where people grew up in a faith tradition of some sort, it's really hard to separate the kind, gentle voice of God from the judgmental voice of, you know, 
youth pastors, parents, pastors, you know, those kinds of things where it was very much, you need to do this and you need to do it this way. And a good Christian does this. And, and so we're not even allowing ourselves to critique those voices because we've yeah. so associated them with the voice of God. And yeah. once we can begin to just give ourselves the permission to ask those questions of, is this from God? Uh, it, it, just opens up all kinds of possibilities. Um, there was a book written called Boundaries for Your Soul, I think, where it was based yeah, on internal yeah. family systems theory. And they were talking about, yeah. you know, how there's things that are at work in us that we typically describe as, you know, sinful desires. And typically our instinct or what we've been taught is to resist those things, to push them away, to push them down, um, to flee temptation. But the author's point was, you know, these are a part of you that if you don't understand them, you're never going to actually address the root of why there's such a powerful desire in your life. And so you almost have to befriend those desires, meaning taking the time to uh, acknowledge them and then be able to say, OK, where is this coming from versus just, OK, this is sin, get it away, you know, and never really dealing with the root of it. But I think a similar thing with those kind of inner critics of until we really understand why that voice is in there, what it's coming from, it's going to be really hard to to deal with it. Yeah. I'd love to hear, you know, with the childhood vows and, and inner critic and some of these things, what do we do about them? Um, or is it something we're supposed to do something about? How do we manage that? I think we should absolutely actively do something about them. The The biggest freedom I've found, it was like a light bulb moment for me, because, you know, as as you know, like I spent so much time studying the nature of chronic anxiety, how it behaves, how does it show up? And uh, it was a light bulb for me when I was like, wait a minute, chronic anxiety acts just like any other gospel message. Mm -hmm. So just to nerd out briefly, <laughs> you know, we think gospel is a church word, but it used to be a Roman Empire word, right? The church stole that word from the Roman Empire. One of my favorite things is the way Luke and Paul steal vocabulary out of Rome and attribute it to Jesus. So, so therefore, Caesar Augustus had a gospel and they called it a gospel. It was a day of good news and glad tidings. I know I'm speaking to someone who knows all of this. Virgil, the poet, was, was writing about the glad tidings and peace and how Augustus will usher in a, a great day one day. And so I started to study the nature of every gospel and it, it definitely revolutionized things for me to realize, okay, every gospel puts you on a path and dangles a promise in front of you out of reach and somebody pays, usually you pay. So in the Roman Empire, um, you know, the Pax Romana, the peace mm -hmm. of Rome was the gospel. Mm -hmm. But man, did you pay with crucifixion and, <laughs> and slavery and taxation? Like the payment was harsh. Yeah. And just as an aside, only a few people got the promise. Mm -hmm. The majority never got wow. the peace of Rome. Um, you could look at the American dream and say, okay, well, that's a gospel. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're grappling with today is how, okay, not enough people are getting it. Mm -hmm. And some, and historically, a group of people paid, mm. so we got it. Um, yeah. And okay, so then chronic anxiety—it it that really helped me. My inner critic is is sending me a gospel. It's putting me on a path, um, and the promise—I never get it. Mm. Just like Roman Empire, um, and so that helps me be really suspicious. And, and like when I start, like what we've been talking about through this whole interview is, man, we are paying. Yeah. It costs us too much. This incessant need to please people or be responsible for people that that costs and so then you do look at 
Jesus gospel and you're like, well, the God pays. This is quite crazy. In this gospel, mm. the human never has to pay. Mm. The God's paying and the human's getting all the benefit. So it's helped me to say, okay, my inner critic is selling me a, a gospel and it's making me pay and I'm never getting the benefit. Mm. So um, that helps me say I want to work harder and break its, yeah. its power. So I actually let it fight the true gospel. I just put them in competition mm. with each other and it very quickly, kind of in a Romans 6 fork in the road yeah. type way. If you, People who aren't familiar with Romans 6, if you read that passage, Paul really does put you at a fork in the road and say, you get to choose. Mm. If you go down this path, you will be consumed by love. And if you go down this path, you'll be consumed by death. Mm. And I think it helped me to realize the end of the path of the inner critic and the childhood vow is always death wow. every time. Wow. Uh, so maybe I can learn to not walk down it as far. Yeah. That's really helped me. Uh, my inner critic really does not have much of a grip on me anymore. Mm. It took me a number of years. Yeah. But the, the other thing, and again, Mrs. Cuss, if she were on the show, <laughs> she taught me uh, because I'd say, boy, your inner critic is so harsh. And she'd say, approach your inner critic with kindness. It'll help and it will confuse it mm. <laughs> and that is an ifs move the boundaries of the soul that's their move as well as your inner critic is actually trying to protect you from yeah. something your childhood vow is actually trying to be helpful yeah. and so rather than saying get behind me satan mm -hmm. just to say what do you need little buddy yeah. you know <laughs> what's what do you need right now can i give it to you and it's okay you can stand yeah. down it's almost like your childhood vow is a sentry or a soldier Hey, you can be at ease. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah. the few good men comes to mind, like, I don't need you on that wall. You can <laughs> back down. We're, we're not in Guantanamo yeah. here. That's helped me yeah. tremendously. So I've learned to befriend my inner critic. Mm. And uh, boy, it, it does not have a grip on me like it did yeah. uh, before, for sure. That's so good. I spent some time actually Monday of this week kind of taking some time to process some stuff I was just feeling that was very much that internal critic and kind of when I got to the bottom of that, there was kind of questions about where my value comes from, you know, those kinds of things. But really underneath all of that was this sense of, am I going to be okay? You know, uh, really the belief of, you know, if I perform, then that'll give me value. And that value will ensure that I'm secure and taken care of. And kind of getting underneath that and saying, okay, what that inner critic or whatever is driving that feeling is just needs to know I'm going to be okay. And being able to speak those words kind of, as you said, softens the, the, the drive of that inner critic. You know, it's often, like you said, it's trying to protect you from something. It's trying to um, make sure you're secure. And once you can kind of uh, soothe that fear or at least speak some truth to that fear, then it can actually subside some of the pressure, you know, yeah. to remember to do that. And that's been a part of my process. But yeah, that's really interesting of befriending the inner critic. <laughs> it makes me excited. I, you know, we're releasing your episode on, on my podcast months before your book comes out. Yeah. But this idea of good baggage, I, I think is related. The idea that um, we can look at whether it's the good things in our childhood, like my love for music, mm -hmm. or the redempt, the redemptive arc, mm -hmm. what would be one or two things in your childhood where you look and say that this is a gift now, even though maybe at the time it wasn't? Yeah, you know, the the a couple of the big ones are growing up in a 
a broken home. Um, my parents were separated for a lot of my childhood. Um, seeing them argue, uh, seeing how that impacted me put this, it was painful, but it put this deep desire in me to see my relationships go differently. And so, whereas there were moments, uh, I have a very distinct memory of the last time kind of my dad moved out. And uh, my dad, with tears in his eyes, said, I want to stay, but your mom won't let me. And I remember thinking in that moment, mom's not making you stay. You can change. You can do something different. You can get the help that you need to get. Just do it. And so what that's done for me now is in those moments where I'm tempted to preserve my pride because I don't want to seek out help or don't to to acknowledge that, hey, we need to talk to a counselor. I am able to see very clearly, okay, the choices here are either I take care of our relationship and do what's necessary to have a healthy relationship, or I preserve my pride, my dignity, whatever it is I think's at stake in that. And because of what I experienced as a child, my inclination is always to go towards what's going to bring our relationship health because I don't want to put Sharon through that, but I also don't want to put our kids through that. And so some of it is just that motivation from seeing how relationships go when they don't go well uh, is one of them. Another one that has been really helpful, and this is one that really worked against me until I was able to understand it and begin to uh, utilize it for good, which is... You know, in an environment where you feel physically unsafe, you feel emotionally unsafe, you are always reading a room as a child to ascertain, you know, is this about to get really bad? Do I need to seek shelter? Like, where's the emotion? Where are the emotions headed? Um, And so you begin to read emotional signs off of people's faces, their demeanor, their body language, the things that they're saying. And in order for your own good. And so this is why, you know, one of the pieces of feedback that I got as people were giving, you know, reading my book was make sure that you honor the work that your child did. You know, when you were a child, honor the the coping mechanisms that they developed, even if they're now working against you, you need to honor the work that they did. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Mm -hmm. now the way that that got me in trouble is I would walk into a room and my instinct would be, how do I keep the peace in this room? How do I make everybody happy in this room? How do I meet everybody's expectations in this room? And that ultimately became exhausting and overwhelming. Um, And so once I was able to see that, I was able to say, okay, how do I bring the good out of this and set aside the bad? And so what that means now is when I'm in a meeting, say, with my team, rather than just running over somebody when they are becoming emotionally in some way caught up emotionally in the conversation, I can read that and say, Hey, I think we need to pause and take a break. Uh, this is, this is getting intense. Let's take a moment, take a break. You know, in that way, it allows me to care for my team uh, emotionally. And that communicates a level of care, which leads to an ability for them to trust me as the lead pastor. And in turn, I think builds a relationship on our team that couldn't have been there if there hadn't been that willingness to care for them emotionally. So those are a couple of the big things I think that I've taken yeah, it's really powerful. You know, I, this is an unusual version of the MLA podcast because in some ways you're the host and I'm the guest on my own yeah. show. But we, what, we, what we know is you set this whole operation up 
In order to avoid the gauntlet of anxiety questions, <laughs> I, I'm on to you. Yes. Before we get to the gauntlet, are there any other things you want to kick around? Um, would just love to hear if, you know, in, in your work, if there's been anything that you maybe experienced in your childhood that was hard, but you've done the work to process and now you've found out how to leverage for, for good. I, I can really resonate with what you said, becoming emotionally attuned. The biggest journey for me has been as an adult learning to have permission mm. for my emotions. Um, I have this incredible gift of being married to one of the most emotionally available people I've mm. ever met. And um, Lisa's emotions are always close to the surface. She she cries for fifty reasons, not three. <laughs> um, and sometimes that gets fun. Like if we're if we're writing her Mother's Day cards, the kids will stare her down because they have a contest on who can make her cry first oh, with gosh. kind words. This kind of stuff. I mean, this is like adult children now at this point. Yeah. Um, but that the the amount of healing for me to be be married to somebody who always invites me to share emotions and gives me permission. Mm has been huge. And so my what I learned is um, I've always been highly emotionally attuned, but it took me a while to realize that's a superpower. It's not like I am sensitive, which means I'm sensitive. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's been amazing. And then the, the other thing, I was raised in a family that was curious about intellectual knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm really grateful for that. It's made me an interesting preacher. Um, I love to learn yeah. about anything. And so, you know, my childhood was surrounded by very stimulating, broad topic conversations. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like God's used all of that um, in so my, my theology. And also being raised outside the church was an incredible gift mm -hmm. as a preacher because I still somewhat am thinking and feeling toward the unchurched yeah. and none of my family, uh, except my sister and I believe that following Jesus is a good way to live your life. Mm. And so it forces me to think everything I think through the lens of the skeptics. And uh, so that's, that's a surprising um, yeah. gift as well. Yeah, that's, that's great. I haven't, I hadn't thought through it on the level of, you know, childhoods, you know, what, what abilities does it give us for ministry or what experiences does it give us to prepare for ministry? So we'll bring on the gauntlet, Steve. Yeah, very good. Yeah, I mean, there's no point putting it off and uh, <laughs> no one can escape the gauntlet of anxiety questions. So, so Ike, let's just begin. Um, and I should warn you that what's typically happening this season is we're sending you some ahead of time, mm -hmm. if for no other reason than just to give you a false sense of security. <laughs> um, I appreciate it. So question number one, what is an area of pressure that you are dealing with right now in your leadership? Yeah, I, I think the the area of leadership uh, where I feel a lot of pressure right now as a church plant is, you know, you're making a lot of decisions that uh, really determine the direction of your church. And so as we're growing, you know, we're asking questions of, okay, do we move into a building? Do we consider going multi-site? Do we continue to meet in a, a theater and do set up and tear down, but rent an office space where we can do midweek stuff, you know? And so you know that there's people who have investment in all of those perspectives. And as someone who does have that inclination to want to 
make sure everyone's happy, it creates a lot of pressure around every decision. Yeah, it's, I, I can relate to that. We were portable for years and it just was an ever present help. Yeah. That uh, it was like an ever present presence that need to figure out how to help the church establish. Yeah. All right. Second question. In the absence of information, people connect the dots in the most pathological way possible. <laughs> what goes through your mind when you're anxious, but don't have all the information? Uh, it is, how do I put on the appearance that I have all the information? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want you to know that I don't have all the information. And so I'm going to act like I do okay. because I, my assumption is, you know, one of the funny things that they talk about adult children of alcoholics is um, that they guess at what's normal because you didn't have a normal childhood. So you guess at what's normal. And that plays out in all kinds of ways as you grow up. But one of those ways is that you assume everybody else already knows the things that you don't know. And so my default is then to just assume, okay, if they know the knowledge, I need to act like I do. <laughs> oh, that's so good. We were chatting about inner critic and gospels and comparing what we believe to the true gospel before. So kind of in that spirit, I wonder if you'd be willing to fill in the blank of this sentence. Okay. What if I were at least as blank to myself as God is? Yeah, it's definitely uh, kind. What if I were as kind to myself as God is? You know, um, my my internal critic typically says things like, you can't do it, you're going to fail, it's not going to work, everybody's going to laugh at you, you know? <laughs> And so, yeah. yeah. The work I'm doing right now and the book I'm writing right now is minding the gap between what we believe about God yeah. and what we experience from God. Yeah. I think a lot of congregants are surprised to discover that their pastor grapples with gaps like they mm -hmm. do. What might be one of the gaps that you grapple with between what you believe but struggle to encounter. Yeah. I just to say, first of all, I love that you're writing on this because I think so many of us operate with this gap and don't even know it. Um, and yeah. so I think it'll change relationships. It'll change people's spiritual lives. Um, for me, the belief is that my value comes from being a child of God, but my experience is my value comes from my performance uh, and how well I, uh, yeah, perform some, act, whether that's preaching or teaching or what kind of husband I am or what kind of father I am. Uh, that's the the experience. Yeah. All right. I, I, I'm actually a little disappointed in how well you sailed through that. <laughs> I didn't even see a bead of sweat. But uh, the final question is, um, when recently in your life have you felt most fully and completely loved? Yeah. Gosh. You know, honestly... Uh, just to brag on Sharon for a moment, I had a really tough conversation uh, with somebody recently, and it was kind of one of those conversations that you didn't see coming. You know, you kind of thought you were going into a conversation with someone expecting to go one way and kind of out of nowhere, you get blindsided with some like criticisms. And I came out of that conversation and Sharon had been listening in and in that moment just said, you are such a good pastor. You handled that so well and just gave me this hug and brought me in. And it was just such a moment of like, you know, thank you for communicating that, for saying that, for knowing like that was what I would needed to hear in that moment. And so it was, it was a powerful moment of just, okay, it's going to be okay. 
Mm. <laughs> My guest is Dr. Ike Miller. The book is Good Baggage, coming out September 2023. Folks, normally somebody writes a book and then we get them on the show. Ike's a dear friend of mine and I really wanted to also just help him as he launches his what, as you can tell, is going to be a phenomenal mm-hmm. podcast. So stay tuned. We'll send a little note to our email list when Ike's book comes out. But Ike, thank you so much for joining on this show. Steve, thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. And yeah, excited for people to be able to hear this before the book and then they can kind of prepare in advance for what's to come. So thanks, Steve. For more resources, visit stevecusswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 